Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Technology, intelligence, data. Today we live in a world that's more connected and more transformative than ever before. Our devices are helping us complete tasks at a faster pace and with more precision than we could have ever imagined just a few years ago. But as our lives in the physical and digital worlds become more intertwined, how can we be sure that the algorithms are always on our side? And how can we safeguard technology to ensure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands? In this series, we'll be meeting the experts, the technologists, entrepreneurs and activists to ask them some of those important questions and to champion the people using tech as a force for good for all. This is Our Lives Plus Tech from Nominate Trust, the UK's leading investor of social tech and the people behind NT100, a global campaign that celebrates the people and organisations who are using tech to change the world for the better. I'm Ada Paris, and in today's podcast, we're going to be focusing in on two projects using mobile technology as a way to collaborate and problem-solve across the world. Coming up, we'll be hearing from South African-based project MumConnect. You know, we're reaching a point where we have almost 5 billion cell phones in the world. So we're at the stage where it's really a ubiquitous technology, and there's nothing more effective than a cell phone to deliver targeted information right into the palm of a mother's hand. And it always is uh, interesting for me to meet a very experienced mother who's been on MomConnect because you think, goodness, what could a text messaging program teach somebody who's already raised three other children? That was Joanne Peter, who will be explaining how MomConnect delivers vital healthcare information to mothers in Africa in a simple yet highly effective way. But more on that later in the programme. Now with me in the studio, I want to welcome another social entrepreneur whose company is all about supplying vital information to the world's least connected places. The company, called WeFarm, has created a free service that enables small-scale farmers to ask questions via SMS and receive crowdsourced answers from others around the world in minutes. 
So now I would like to welcome We Farm founder Kenny Ewan. Great to have you here. Hi. Hi, thank you for joining us. No, thank you. So Kenny, on We Farm, you have nearly 800,000 farmers registered with over 60 million messages shared to date, predominantly in Africa. Is that right? I think that's probably near about 70 or 80 million now. But, wow. Uh, yeah, that, that's correct. About 800,000 farmers that have joined up uh, and growing by about 2,000 every day. Wow. OK, so let's start with what is the problem that We Farm is trying to solve? Uh, so the problem, very basically, is lack of access to knowledge and information. Um, there's about 500 million small-scale farms globally uh, that have no access to the internet. That's about one and a half to two billion people that live and work on them, which is a substantial percentage of the world's population. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so lack of access to knowledge about how to grow their crops, how to battle diseases, obviously a problem for them. But it's also a problem for all of us. Uh, they grow 70, 80 percent of the world's food. Uh, it's the world's commodities markets. Uh, so this is a, a fairly serious global problem. And so you've created a platform that basically uses text messaging. How does that actually work in practice? Yeah, so um, uh, it's kind of like going back to the future for us. We use a, a combination of uh, machine learning and, and SMS to, yeah. to provide a service. So really we're channel agnostic, but most of the farmers that we work with, uh, SMS is the channel that they have access to. So they send us a question. Uh, maybe their chicken isn't laying any eggs. Maybe their coffee is being attacked by a disease. Maybe they want to try planting a new crop. Uh, so they send it in any language to us uh, for free. We use now increasingly machine learning, AI, to try and understand everything that that farmer is asking us. Uh, you know, where is that farmer? What are they farming? What's their history in our system? Uh, what's the weather like where they are? And we essentially use that analysis to, to either pick out a couple of people in our entire network that can answer that one individual question or an existing answer that is well matched to their exact question. So could you give us some examples of some of the questions that you're being asked by the farmers? Yeah, I mean, obviously, with the millions of pieces of content we get, there's a, a huge range. Uh, but a typical example might be, you know, we had a farmer called Victor, uh, who's a tea farmer in rural Kenya. Um, his plants were being attacked by a pest he'd, he'd never seen before, probably due to climate change. Uh, so he sent a question to We Farm. It ended up with a, a farmer called Doris. Uh, she was also a tea farmer, um, but in a slightly different part of the country. She'd been dealing with that pest every day of her life for the last um, 10 years. And so who better to provide really relevant um, contextual advice uh, back to Victor so that he can save his, his tea plants. And it's kind of the, the WeFarm model in a, uh, encapsulated, I guess. That's great. So you're also creating this really supportive community. Yeah, I mean, I think the power of the voice that we're able to, to produce on behalf of the farmers is a big part of it. Most of these farmers have only ever been talked down to. And actually getting farmers to realise that they have powerful things to say, 20 years of experience in, in farming something, is, is one of our harder missions. Uh, but once people kind of get that excitement of being able to contribute something, um, you know, that's it's really great to see. So it's really empowering for the individual farmers, not only to be able to contribute, but also know that they, they have a resource where they can ask questions. I hope so. I mean, it's... You know, empowerment's like kind of one of those Western development words that we like to throw around. But in this case, I'd like to think that's genuinely true. The way that WeFarm works is, is that it's actually a peer-to-peer -peer network. So why do you say that rather than saying experts? Uh, so that was one of the things that we fundamentally set out to do was build a more sustainable uh, model. I mean, we're obviously not the first people to recognise this lack of information issue. Uh, but everybody else, you know, NGOs, governments, everybody comes at it from the top down uh, with a kind of core assumption that, that poor people just need to be told what to do. Um, and I, I think we would never say there's not room for expert advice. Of, of course there is. But 
Um, there's also a huge amount of room for, for people to provide advice to each other. Um, you know, there was a recent study that, that was done with the Gates Foundation and the FAO, which uh, showed that some farmers were substantially more likely to implement a solution that they'd heard about from another farmer uh, rather than an expert. Um, and that's all about it's 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 relevant to them. They understand the language it's described in. They understand all of the context of it. So that's really a fundamental part of our model uh, to be able to scale massively given peer-driven information. I mean, how many experts can you have sitting in a room answering questions? You know, 10, 100, you know, ultimately it's not a scalable model. I love that because you're actually, you know, going to where people are at and helping build from the bottom up. So a real human kind of, almost a human-centred design approach to understanding the needs of the individual farmers themselves. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's uh, we've, we've very big believers in human-centred design. Um, you know, essentially what we're trying to do is take 10 million people, one person with a question and one person in that entire group that has a relevant answer and connect them together, even without Internet. OK, so I want to talk a little bit more about your background. So how did you get into this? Because I believe you trained as an architect. Uh, that's that's right. A long, a long time ago. But yeah, back in Scotland, I, I trained as an architect. Uh, I took a job in South America, in Peru, originally just for six months for some experience building construction projects. They offered me a management position and I ended up staying for seven years wow. uh, based out of Latin America, which was an amazing experience. Uh, uh, and I specialized in, in building fish farms in indigenous communities. It showed me a lot of the reality of, of, of working in communities. It also showed me you know, a lot of stuff that was happening in, in government and NGO-led development stuff, some of which was good and, and some of which, uh, you know, being honest, I wasn't a big fan of. Such uh, as? Uh, I, I, a lot of mass scale projects that I think probably made sense in some office in Zurich or Washington or London, um, you know, a lot of uh, people tacking things like sanitary conditions and, and building toilets in, in rural communities that then ended up, you know, a year later becoming, you know, very unsanitary because, you know, people had been dealing with their own waste problems for, for generations, mm-hmm. for millennia. And these things that kind of make sense somewhere else uh, really didn't on the ground. Um, despite good intentions. And I think, you know, it, I came to the conclusion that a lot of this was well-intentioned, but, but paternalistic, ultimately, okay. uh, and really started to form, you know, a lot of the, the background that would go into WeFarm. Okay, and so you started working with local farmers in Peru, fish farms, and then how did you start to build the idea of WeFarm? What was what was the next step for you? So I was, I was offered the chance to be part of a, a startup social enterprise in London called the Cafe Direct Producers Foundation with a part of the startup team with Claire Rhodes. And a lot of her background was in, in similar things in community-led development. Uh, and together, we, we kind of put our ideas together. Uh, at the foundation, we were working very specifically with small-scale farmers, mostly in East Africa and Latin America. And we started to develop the pilots of what would eventually become WeFarm and, and actually try it out with, with farmers and get their feedback into it. Do you see yourself as a social entrepreneur or a an activist almost in the way that you're trying to change the perception of peer-to-peer networks and working from the bottom up? I, I wouldn't describe myself as an activist. No, I mean, I think we're maybe trying to lead by example. Um, okay. I, I'd first and foremost just describe myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I've, I very, very much believe in the social mission at the heart of, of WeFarm. It's a huge part of, of me and who we are as a, as a company. But I also think it's important to... You know, personally, I think we you need to embed a social mission at the heart of your company and then just act like a company. Um, and I think there's there's possibly slightly too much of a tendency in social entrepreneurship to kind of silo everything off into these kind of social buckets, um, which I, I get where that comes from. But I think ultimately, if your mission is embedded enough in your company, you don't need to have these kind of special, special conditions uh, to be a social okay. entrepreneur. And so what's been the most difficult thing in building WeFarm and getting it to where it is now? Oh, we could be here all day talking about that, to be honest. Um, 
I mean, first and foremost, it was the, the idea that we're building, you know, it now sounds very simple, but um, we had a lot of resistance to it in the beginning. A lot of NGOs, a lot of governments we spoke to were very against the idea of peer-to-peer information. Um, okay. You know, that, that was why they existed, was to give people information. Um, we were told very, very strongly by a number of people that it would never work, that it was crazy. Um, you know, we've managed to overcome that, I think, just by the traction that we've gained, you know, very close to having a million farmers using WeFarm now. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still a bit surreal. I, I remember our first uh, 10 users by name uh, and now to see 2,000 people joining every day is, is kind of crazy. Um, and, and then as we've grown the business, there's obviously been just so many challenges, um, everything from getting great talent into a business all over the world. You know, we, we have offices in, in Kenya and Uganda and, and London and being able to to build a, a company and build a, a, a value system to build a culture when you're spread out is, is obviously really difficult. Um, but ultimately, we've built a very diverse multicultural company that I think is is part of the reason that we've achieved what we have. And so how many of you are we found now? Uh, we're now 34, Okay, I think. It's, it changes day by day um, as we go through hiring processes. But yeah, I mean, we've, we've grown from about uh, 25 at the beginning of the year to now 34. And actually now moving on to the tech side of things. So I can imagine that, you know, from the front end, the SMS text messaging is pretty basic. But the back end, I can imagine, is quite complicated. How did you go about building that? Um, so I, I can only pretend to know uh, about this kind of side of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I guess it's kind of inversely related that the more simple the end medium of like an SMS, that the more complicated the back end has to be. Um, uh, we, we now have a really great tech team, data science team, um, who build a lot of this technology in-house. Um, we spend a lot of time building algorithms that try to understand what our farmers are telling us. Um, you know, we're obviously dealing often with semi-literate populations using a very old school Nokia phone that has three keys missing. Uh, so a lot of the content we get is, is not entirely obvious immediately what that farmer's trying to ask or, or tell us. Um, so we spend a lot of time just trying to make sure that that farmer's voice can be heard and sent to the right person. Uh, but, uh, you know, from, from my side, I stepped out of the tech side of the business uh, from anything but a kind of strategic point of view quite a while ago and, and you know, very happily handed it over to the experts. How did you go about building the team of experts? Uh, there's trial and error and, and definitely a bit of luck. Okay. Um, we, Our original uh, system that we kind of piloted with uh, and launched with was, was built externally through a company called Conquer Group that were extremely generous with us in helping us to build that system and get it off the ground. Uh, as we started to get some traction, we obviously decided that we needed to, to start building our technology internally. And uh, we went out and hired a, a CTO, um, somebody that could help us build a tech team internally. And Adam Nielsen joined us you know, almost two years ago now. And we're extremely lucky to get such an just amazing CTO that's, you know, really fitted in amazingly with the, the values of the company, with the mission that we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, he's gone about building a, a really awesome now. I think we have eight or nine, you know, full-time engineers and data scientists who've, you know, taken that original idea and, and made it, you know, hugely more uh, impressive and complicated. Okay, so I'd like to ask, because you are a social enterprise, but ultimately you're still a business, how do you make money? Um, so really two ways that we look at uh, monetizing uh, WeFarm. Uh, one is on the data side of things. And uh, given recent press, I know people instantly get, get quite scared by that kind of comment. But we're not looking at any of the, the kind of personal information or, or marketing side of that. Uh, we're actually looking at how do you how do you look at trends in agriculture uh, using you know thousands and thousands of farmer-centered communications. So for example, can we predict or track diseases live using just user-driven uh, content? Can we look at the ripening periods for different 
crops, um, you know, potentially a lot of different things in agriculture. That's valuable data for governments, NGOs, um, academics, academics, yeah. um, and multinationals. I mean, yeah. ultimately, these farmers are selling to to your Unilevers, your Starbucks, uh, whoever it might be. Uh, so that's one side. I'll just emphasize: we never give any farmers personal information to anyone. The second thing is 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 now looking increasingly at providing additional services to farmers. So we noticed that actually quite a lot of the content we get is from farmers who are looking to source uh, products or services either from each other, you know, so a farmer that's got 10 chickens for sale and another farmer that wants to buy 10 chickens and can we connect those together um, to farmers looking for for insurance for their crops or where they source a particular type of fertilizer. You know, for most farmers, we farm is their entire digital connection. Uh, So they're trying to use it for all sorts of things. Um, The way we probably use Google. And so uh, simply allowing them to do that, can we can we connect them to a trusted loan provider? Um, They get a, a hopefully a cheaper, more reliable insurance. And we can take a small commission from that. The farmers that are selling chickens with each other, can we help to facilitate that to build a, an offline uh, marketplace for farmers to be able to trade with each other? And, and again, obviously take very small fees for, for that, but at a, a massive scale. Okay, and so kind of building on from that, there's this conversation around trust. So because you are a peer-to-peer network, how do you actually, or do you, and how do you actually police some of the information that's being shared? Um, so first and foremost, that's that's where we use machine learning, I guess, more than anything else to try and look at content, um, you know, obviously at a very top level to take out inappropriate content, uh, you know, or, or things that we wouldn't want shared through our network. We then uh, use you know, much more sophisticated algorithms to look at um, the type of information that people are, are, are sharing with us and who might have expertise on particular topics. And then we use user feedback to mix into that to, to essentially allow us to know who is the best place to answer a question on a particular subject. I guess the analogy I would use is eBay, where if you buy a product through eBay, they can't verify that the product is is perfect. Mm-hmm. What they can tell you is that the person you're buying it from it sells good T-shirts or that the crowd have verified that they sell good T-shirts. We're essentially doing the same thing for knowledge. So, you know, there is, in, in the end of it, there's no way for us to know that that is an exactly good chicken answer. Mm-hmm. But we can tell you that this person knows a lot about that chicken disease. Um, so that's that's how we do that. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about some of the support that you've had or you've managed to gain. So you're funded by people such as Nominate Trust, uh, Knight and Google. How did you go about getting them involved in what you're trying to do and believing in your bigger vision? So, yeah, originally um, Nominate Trust were the first people to ever back our idea. Uh, back when everybody was saying it was a crazy idea. So I'll definitely feel a, a very deep appreciation for, for Nominate Trust. And what was that conversation like? Um, I mean, to be honest, at the time, I think Nominate Trust were fairly young themselves. Um, you know, being honest, we wrote them a letter and an application and they sent back a check. Wow. Right. I wish it was always that easy. <laughs> um, uh, we then obviously went on to, to grow a very strong relationship with Nominate Trust. You know, I, personally, I think we have a big problem in the international kind of development and social good space of not enough people willing to take big risks with funding. Um, everyone wants to play it safe. And I, I get, again, where that attitude comes from. But ultimately, you don't change the world by by being safe and conservative. And Nominate Trust, you know, backed our idea of where nobody else would. And, uh, you know, I hope we've we've done them proud. Uh, we did get backing from, from Google.org to kind of launch the business as well through winning the, the Google Impact Challenge. Uh, since then, since we launched, uh, we've been venture capital backed. Um, so nice. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Local Globe, ADV in the UK, um, both backed our original seed round. And then recently we did a round with uh, True Ventures and Silicon Valley. Um, so... You know, obviously pretty rare for Silicon Valley uh, investors to, to back European companies at this stage. And as a social enterprise in particular, I think we're we're pretty proud of yeah, having... Yeah, you must be really proud. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, so 
Could you give our listeners some tips about how to kind of bring together the right balance between solving a problem and staying financially viable? Um, my investors would probably say that I, I need to give myself some tips on that first. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my encouragement would be to 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 really think big about your idea. Um, you know, that's been a really interesting experience for me, kind of being part of the, the whole grant funding space for a long time and now being really part of the venture capital space. Uh, there is just a shift change between those two environments in, in terms of big thinking. Okay. Um, you know, there's almost inherently in the grant space, you have to be quite conservative and you have to write applications being very realistic. And then you speak to a venture capitalist and they want to know how you are going to become the biggest person in your space in the entire world uh, in the next three years. Um, and there's there's good there's good parts of that and bad parts and definitely recognize some of the downsides of the Silicon Valley mentality. But I would encourage not not to be limited by, you know, what might be available in the social impact space. Um, you know, go out and think really big. If you want to solve a problem, what what does it mean to be the best and the biggest at solving that problem and then kind of work towards that mission? Okay, and what does that mean to you, being the biggest and the best? Uh, I, I mean, we very much want to be the uh, the global ecosystem for small-scale farmers. You know, we want to do this on behalf of them to ultimately have hundreds of millions of small scale farmers globally using WeFarm for their knowledge, for their information, to buy their products, to trade their products. Um, and if we can do that entire supply chain with them, with their voice at the heart of that, um, that's obviously hugely impactful uh, for them as farmers and, and we hope an extremely profitable business as well. So what next for WeFarm? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, continuing to, to grow is obviously extremely important for us. Um, you know, we are ultimately a scale-based model unless unless all of those global farmers end up using WeFarm. We, we don't accomplish what we want to. So we're, we're looking to launch in new markets um, in Africa, potentially in, in Southeast Asia over next year. Uh, and ultimately, we were pretty close to having our millionth farmer use the system. So 10 million, I guess, becomes the next target after yeah. that. Um, we want to continue to recruit really great people into our team to, to enable us to do that. Uh, and we want to continue to innovate around our product. You know, the core question and answer system is obviously great and people love to use it. We get 15,000 questions and answers a day uh, now. But, you know, we want to continue to innovate around that and offer farmers more and more services, even if they don't have access to the Internet. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, right now, I want to shine the spotlight on another hugely impactful project with SMS messaging at the core. We've heard a short clip from her at the start of the podcast, and I now want to hand over to Joanne Peter. Hi, I'm Joanne Peter. I lead the health technology work of Johnson & Johnson's global community impact team. I'm also the lead on our relationship with MomConnect. MomConnect is a flagship program of South Africa's National Department of Health which is a large mobile messaging service for pregnant women and new mothers in South Africa and has been implemented in almost 95% of all of the public health clinics nationwide. Johnson & Johnson was one of the very first funders of MomConnect and we are also a strategic partner and offer content support and advice through Baby Center, a member of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies. 
So MomConnect aimed to solve a few different problems. Firstly, for pregnant women and new mothers, a lack of accurate and easily accessible information about healthy household practices during their pregnancy and early childhood and when to access health services. Secondly, a lack of opportunities for women in South Africa to give feedback on the quality of services they were receiving and really to hold the health system to account. And lastly, a lack of information just about, in general, where pregnant women in South Africa were, where they're receiving care and their basic demographic information, like their age and language, in order to help the Department of Health to actually plan service delivery. Yeah, so MomConnect, it has always aimed to reach mothers exactly where they are. You know, we're reaching a point where we have almost 5 billion cell phones in the world. So we're at the stage where it's really a ubiquitous technology and there's nothing more effective than a cell phone to deliver targeted information right into the palm of a mother's hand. So the basic technologies that are in use are, you know, nothing sophisticated. A mom is registered at her first antenatal appointment by the health worker using very simple USSD and it works on absolutely any phone, so she doesn't need to own a smartphone. And then once she's registered, she gets two messages a week through her pregnancy and until her child turns one through SMS. And now, most recently, it is possible for a mother to opt in to receive her messaging through WhatsApp instead of SMS. But really, simple technologies, but put together in a meaningful way and aiming to offer really universal coverage of this so that no mother is excluded. Every mother does have the option to participate and to get the information that she needs. So the messages were written with a lot of support from Baby Center. They are timed throughout to the estimated date of delivery. So they map to the development of the fetus and then to the developmental milestones of the child. And they cover all sorts of topics. I mean, aim to really walk that journey of pregnancy with the mother, all speaking to particular behaviors and choices that she's going to be making to keep herself healthy and her child healthy. So in, in South Africa, particularly important is um, HIV and testing for HIV and, and knowing what to do in the case of being positive and how to actually feed your child, exclusive breastfeeding, etc. Emotional support and parenting support, which we know is highly valuable to moms other information about resting during pregnancy and attending antenatal appointments. And then, you know, once the baby's born, things like immunizations, breastfeeding, as I mentioned, when to introduce solid foods and how to introduce early learning and stimulation. You know, so it's a broad range of topics, uh, but really aiming to address those behaviors that we know very well demonstrated in the literature to actually have an association with improved infant or maternal mortality or to be really important um, in terms of infant thriving afterwards, you know, important early childhood development. So I have some quick stats about um, how MomConnect has made a difference. Firstly, it's about to reach 2 million mothers registered since it started and currently has about a million active users with registrations happening in more than 95% of clinics around the country. And that's really exciting because that's more than 60% of all eligible pregnant women that have been registered, giving it the highest population coverage of any program of its kind in the world that we know of. Just the other day, I had the great pleasure of meeting a mother of four in Kailicha. Uh, her name was Nusepiwo. And it always is uh, interesting for me to meet a very experienced mother who's been on MomConnect because you think, goodness, what could a text messaging program teach somebody who's already raised three other children? And to my great delight, 
she actually said that um, with her first three children, she had succumbed to a very common cultural practice, which is to start to introduce infant cereals at about a month of age. And that obviously does jeopardize breastfeeding. It reduces the amount of feeding and can diminish the milk supply, etc. And so with this fourth child, for the first time, she had actually received messages that explained the importance of exclusive breastfeeding. And that kept reminding her of this. Whenever she was tempted to succumb or she got pressure from uh, family members or, or peers to start um, introducing the solids or, or water, she would get a message that reminded her to stick at it. And so for the first time, she actually had been exclusively breastfeeding this baby right up to, at that stage, it was four months old. And she was so proud of herself because this child was actually a healthy weight than any of her sons had been and never suffered from things like constipation which all of her sons had suffered from so it, it was quite incredible to see that even the fourth time around she was still learning something and she felt very encouraged by the messages a second one is that South Africa actually um, experienced a, a really severe Listeria outbreak um, earlier this year. It was the largest outbreak that's ever been reported globally. And it had about almost a 30% fatality rate, which disproportionately affects newborns. So very severe disease. And because of the fact that MomConnect now has about a million active users. The department actually used it as an official communication channel during the outbreak. So they were able to blast out messages on Listeria and how mothers could keep themselves and their babies healthy through MomConnect. So that was super exciting. And then a third one, I mentioned that there's a help desk so mothers can actually respond back to messages with questions or to log uh, compliments or complaints. And if they log a complaint, it's actually linked to the unique facility code where they're receiving care. And so when they submit a complaint, it's possible to track it right back to that individual facility. And so we've heard from the department that they started getting some complaints from mums about a shortage of iron tablets at a particular clinic. And then they saw complaints coming in from another clinic and another, and soon they were able to discern that there was actually a pattern and it traced back to an issue with the ordering and procurement of iron tablets. And they first identified that from the mom's feedback. So that was a really exciting example of the power that the service can actually have to give mothers a voice within the health system. I'm very proud to be part of Mom Connect. I do laugh because it's one of those typical examples of a, a seven-year overnight success <laughs> where suddenly um, it, it, it really is such a wonderful substantive story um, of impact in the health system but it's been a long road to get there i'd like to um, really give a shout out to all of the partners in mom connect including our local technology partner prekelt.org and then of course to the south african national department of health who have offered phenomenal leadership to mom connect since it started in august 2014. So search for mom connect and there's a host of additional information uh, that you can read about this very exciting program so that was joanne peter and a huge thank you to her and the mom connect team Healthcare for mothers is sadly still a massive problem in the developing world, so it's a brilliant project, and we wish them well. May they go from strength to strength.
You're listening to Our Lives Plus Tech from Nominate Trust with Kenny Ewan, founder and CEO of WeFarm, who's still with me in the studio. So, Kenny, both WeFarm and MomConnect have realised that there's something really valuable in the low-tech approach that can probably be the most effective way to innovate and create progress. So is it the case that some projects fail at the first hurdle because they're just trying to be too clever, or is it that they fail to see the simpler, more straightforward approach that's right in front of them? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think, I mean, for me, we, we talked about human-centered design earlier. Uh, and I think uh, I've seen a lot of people that potentially misunderstand human-centered design a little, and, and they think it's about talking to people and asking them what they want, and then kind of going and building that. Uh, whereas I think a lot of human-centered design is actually about observing behavior, which is a, often a quite a different thing. It's, it's something we see often in WeFarm now at scale is that if you ask, you know, a thousand of our users their opinion on something, and then you observe those same thousand users and how they actually interact with our system. They're often very different things. Uh, you know, we've seen this from market research over decades. And I think a lot of people fall into the trap of, you know, X number of farmers or X number of moms have told us that this is what their biggest challenge is. This is what they need. And then they build that and they actually find out that it's it's not. Um, and, and it's not people obviously deliberately misleading. You know, people often don't don't actually realize what their challenges are. Sometimes they, they, they tell you what you want to hear or they think you want to hear. Uh, so I'd, I'd kind of encourage people to, to maybe take a more data-centered approach and actually spend a bit more time just observing. So it's looking at the stories behind the data rather than just the numbers themselves. Exactly. Okay, so another thing that I wanted to ask you is that you've, you've actually built an international platform. But unlike Joanne, who's really close to the action in Africa, your offices are here in East London. Um, so how have you managed to navigate the international landscape and to make sure that you're really listening and observing the people who need this service the most? Do you have teams abroad working with the farmers? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, we do. Uh, so we have offices in Nairobi and Kampala um, that manage, obviously, our Ugandan and Kenyan teams. That's where we really do a lot of our farmer-centered work. You know, a lot of our community uh, support, a lot of our marketing is, is driven out of those offices. Um, the reason we have an office in London, well, I think there's several reasons. One, you know, we're doing kind of cutting-edge data science and AI work um, and building kind of quite sophisticated technology. Uh, it's harder to do that, um, just being honest, in, in East Africa. Um, obviously, there's a growing development scene in, in Kenya in particular, but but things like data science are, are still pretty hard to, to do there. Secondly, and just being entirely honest, this is where the money is. Um, yep. You know, we need to raise money to be able to do what we're doing. Um, that's much harder uh, as an East African-based company. You know, it shouldn't be, but uh, but that's the, the that's reality. That's the reality at the moment. Yeah. And thirdly, we, on our kind of commercial side, we, we work with clients and, and NGOs, uh, corporates who, who work with these farmers who source from them, uh, helping them understand their supply chains and things like that. And obviously, most of them are based, uh, you know, in the Western world as well. Now, ultimately, our ambition is to be a global company, to be in 40, 50 countries. Countries. Uh, at that point, it probably makes a bit more sense to have a, a, a head office in, in London. Um, it's obviously a bit different, but we believe in, in the model we've we've taken on. Great. Um, I wanted to ask you a little question about impact. So, how do you? Because you know, whether you describe yourself as a social tech company or you know tech company, how do you actually measure impact of what you're doing? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and, and impact is hugely important to us uh, and to me personally. Um, ultimately, what we want to do is improve the livelihood of the farmers. Measuring that accurately is is an extremely big challenge, uh, especially in something like ag agriculture. You know, there's such big external forces like weather, of course, in particular. You can provide really great advice to farmers and they can implement it and everything's going great. And then a hurricane comes along or a drought comes along and, you know, actually the, the impact is negative, uh, but it's, it's not related to the service you're providing. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges in the space of providing accurate information, which... 
you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of big numbers out there from from NGOs or such like that. It's it's really hard to actually see where you get from that big number to, to the actual reality, to be honest. Um, for us, we're looking into ways that we can follow individual farmers or small communities through, say, a year of using WeFarm okay. to try and look at the journey of, you know, if a farmer hears something on WeFarm, do they actually implement it? And if they actually implement it, do they see a benefit of it? The honest answer is it's a work in progress for us. We okay. don't have any huge numbers to report, but but we're very keen to do it accurately and properly. So potentially some case studies coming out in the near future. So we already have some some great case studies. If anyone that's interested can can see them on our website at wefarm.org. Uh, lots of great stories of farmers who've you know had some significant problems, used WeFarm, and, and and got great information that's helped them to maintain or you know save their livelihood. Um, for us, I think it's taking the next step of, of turning a, a few great case studies into some really actual, great, robust um, impact data. Okay, and with that in mind, what are you most proud of about WeFarm? Oh, that's a that's a really difficult question. Um, I mean, part of part of this kind of entrepreneurship journey is not having the time to really step back and and and, and think about those things. Um, something I'm not particularly good at, perhaps. Uh, I'm proud of the team that we've built. You know, I look around the office and see just so many talented people. Uh, working on something that you know we created all those kind of years ago, which you know is, is gives me goosebumps. Um, seeing eight hundred thousand, you know, soon a million farmers using something that we created is 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 amazing. I guess what I'm probably singularly most proud of is is when you see some of those case studies or you speak to a farmer who has genuinely used WeFarm and got information that has significantly impacted their life. Um, you know, those stories are obviously why we do it, why we set it up, and, and, and that's pretty special. Could you share one of those stories? Uh, yeah, I mean, so you know, one of the, the case studies we talk about quite a lot is is a chicken farmer in Kenya called, called Kefa. He kept about, uh, I think, something like 55 chickens, um, which was, you know, his entire livelihood. It paid for his kids to go to school, to put um, food on his table. And he had a disease which had killed uh, about half his flock in the space of a couple of days. Uh, they obviously didn't know what to do anything about um, so he sent a question to WeFarm, um, got information back from several different farmers who'd experienced this disease and was actually able to save uh, about 20-something chickens, 25 chickens, about half his flock, uh, using this advice uh, and able to re-establish you know, his livelihood, um, which, you know, I mean, saving 20 chickens probably doesn't sound like a huge amount when you're, you're sitting in, in London or... But then when that's your livelihood, that's exactly. everything that you've got. That's yeah. amazing. And if he'd lost those extra you know, 20 chickens, um, he would have been literally had nothing left, nothing to send his kids to school or, or put food on the table. So, you know, it's stuff like that, that that gets us out of bed in the morning. And what's been the hardest thing? Oh, that's, uh, you know, everything's everything's hard when you're building a business. Um, it's been hard to, to get people to back our idea in the beginnings, you know, which is why I guess Nominate Trust was such a big deal for us, you know, um, four years ago. It's been hard to, to build... A team. It's been hard to, you know, recruit people into, you know, a, a business that maybe is people taking a chance with their own career. You know, who knows if that business is going to be there a year from now? Uh, and it's, you know, it's been hard to build uh, technology in a, a sort of area where where really nobody has has built a, a sort of peer to peer network offline before, uh, certainly at any scale. So we've we've kind of had to do that all of ourselves. Uh, we're working in languages often, like you know. Obviously, English and Swahili in Kenya, but regional languages in Uganda like Lugandu or Ruwankali or, you know, languages that nobody has ever built any kind of natural language processing or data science in before. And we've had to build all of that ourselves internally. So no shortage of challenges. What was the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself? Uh, that, yeah, that's a, that's a deep question. Um, a lot. I think, you know, it's been a, you know, people use this word journey, a horrible word, I guess, but uh, it has really been a, a sort of journey for me over the last four years of, of creating this company and, and building this mission. Um, 
I mean, I think the, the biggest thing I've probably learned in a practical sense is, is hopefully how to be a bit of a more of a CEO. Um, there is a difference, I think, between a founder and a, and a CEO. What's uh, the difference? Well, I think, you know, a founder is someone who has an idea and can get people to kind of get behind that idea, to, to stand in a line behind them and, and, and lead them towards it, I guess, is the, the image of a founder. And a CEO is somebody that has to actually run a company that has to build, you know, systems um, that work for, you know, dozens of people to be able to recruit train, manage, um, you know, an entire company. Um, I'm certainly not there yet. There's a, a lot for me to learn. But if I look at my own personal journey, that that's where I've kind of probably learned the most. Thanks for sharing. Um, so we're nearly out of time today. So I suppose I want to do a bit of future gazing now. What's the big next big challenge for WeFarm? I think the big the big challenge for us is how we bridge that gap between offline and online. Um, so technically, farmers can use WeFarm online now. Uh, the vast, vast majority use it through SMS. If we look at a three to five year time horizon, that will change. Uh, farmers are increasingly getting access to smartphones and then increasingly getting access to data um, to actually use those smartphones. Uh, you know, three, four years from now, we'll probably reach an inflection point where, where more people have access to smartphones than don't. Uh, and WeFarm really has to get ahead of that curve. You know, I, I think we, we like to use a, a kind of analogy with Netflix. Uh, you know, he used to send DVDs yeah. through the post to people and we're able to build a lot of trust and a lot of, you know, a great brand uh, through that kind of offline approach. But because they saw the future coming, because they saw that the online uh, revolution was going to allow them to do different things, they were able to get ahead of that and convert an offline brand into an online one. You know, in theory, we'd like to do the same of taking, you know, hopefully by that time, 10, 20 million farmers that are using WeFarm and trusting it. Um, and then get them to use it online as well. But that's going to be a challenge for us. Okay. And where can our listeners find out more? Uh, so you can definitely find out more at wefarm.org. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the company, there's there's the form on the website to do so. And, you know, we'd love we'd love to hear from you. And you did mention you've got some case studies on the website as well. Yeah, we are. Uh, we're we're pretty close to, to rebuilding our website. So if you take check back in a few weeks' time, you might, you might see some even more interesting ones. But, uh, yeah, we have... Uh, uh, resort. We have a live feed of questions and and where they are in the world coming in on our website. So it's quite interesting. Uh, people get quite captivated by that. Yeah, I did this morning. Yeah, um, it's very popular. Um, and then we we all, we have case studies and, and all sorts of things about our history. Great. Well, Kenny, it's been brilliant talking to you in the studio today. Such a inspiring project. Not even a project. A, a business. A way of changing people's lives. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And a big thanks to to Joanne Peter from MumConnect. If you want to explore today's subject in more depth, it's definitely worth reading the new report commissioned by Nominate Trust, Comic Relief and Indigo Trust called Social Tech Ecosystems in Sub-Saharan Africa. It also features MumConnect and you can find it under the resources and publications section at nominatetrust.org.uk. Our Lives Plus Tech will be back in two weeks' time for the final episode in this series. But until then, all that's left to say is goodbye from me, Ada Paris. Mm-hmm.